Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. On today's episode, I speak to the wonderful Crystal Ball. Crystal Ball is the co-host of Rising on Hill TV, which she co-hosts with Sagar and Jetty. She's also the co-author of the forthcoming book, The Populist Guide to 2020, which she co-wrote with her co-host, Sagar and Jetty. Information about the book can be found at Crystal Ball's Twitter, which is just Crystal Ball. K-R-Y-S-T-A-L-B-A-L-L, and you can find out how to pre-order the book and also how to attend different events for the book. Also, I go on Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty's show, Rising, every uh, week, and I go over media fails with them, so that's really fun. So make sure you, you watch that on Hill TV on YouTube. Uh, also, a really important update about friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald. Over 40 press, freedom, and civil liberties groups denounced Brazil's charges against Glenn Greenwald. Um, there's an open letter uh, strongly condemning the cybercrime charges against Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Glenn Greenwald and demanding that Brazilian authorities renounce them immediately. The letter was organized by Freedom of the Press Foundation and Reporters Without Borders and includes prominent members of the human rights, civil liberties, and press freedom organizations from Brazil around the world. Also, I had a really great time on the Michael Moore podcast, which is called Rumble. It's a new podcast hosted by Michael Moore, and that was really fun to do. And everyone should subscribe to the podcast Rumble. So really excited to talk to one of my faves, personal hero, I'll say. People keep comparing me to you, which is very flattering. They compare me to you and Jimmy Dore, which is a funny combo, but I guess that makes sense because I'm like, I'm your love child, the love child of Crystal Ball and Jimmy Dore getting, if they had one. It's getting really complicated. Yeah, fast. it's getting really, yeah. Um, so Crystal Ball, host of Rising, co-host of Rising, um, also a former congressional candidate, uh, former host of co-host of The Cycle yep. on MSNBC, shudder to say its name, um, which gives you like a really interesting perspective. Author of two books, two books, right? Yep. The apo- reversing the apocalypse, reversing the reversing the, the Democratic Party to save the world is what it's called, and then the new one is the Populist Guide to Twenty Twenty: A New Right and New Left Are Rising, and that's written with um, myself and my co-host Sagar. And what made you, how did you start doing the show that you now do on the Hill? Um, It's sort of happenstance. (laughs) Honestly, after um, my show was canceled at MSNBC, I was fine to be done with media for a while. I mean, the cable news world is, is a barren wasteland. So I was not anxious to throw myself back into that. I was happy to just like have some time with my kids my husband had a reason for us to move to Kentucky. We went, we were living in Kentucky during 2016. And then out of 2016, I think all of us had this feeling of like, all right, I can't just like kind of sit on the sidelines. I got to get back and get reengaged. The first piece of that was actually the day after the election. I wrote a piece that went viral called The Democratic Party Deserved to Die. And just calling out how they stood by as the working class in this country, the multiracial working class in this country was destroyed. And then we're surprised to see the results of that, right? That there would be a backlash to that type of politics. Where did you publish that? That was just Huffington Post. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, it's, it's very much core to what we talk about on the show. I then took the, the kernel of that piece and, um, turned it into a book, called Reversing the Apocalypse. I just self-published. It was basically a way for me to sort of formulate my thoughts in this era. And um, and then I got a call from um, from the, the folks at the Hill. They wanted to start a new morning show. And the thing that was important to me was 
that I have um, some say over who my co-host was and that I have a lot of creative control over the show. Like that was essential to me um, because I'd been in a situation, you know, where I had people telling me how the show should be and what it should look like and putting some sort of limits on the areas I could explore, et cetera, et cetera. And I just had no interest in going back down that path. So when I got assurances that, that they've definitely held up, yeah, um, that I would have a lot of creative control, I decided to jump in. So my first co-host was uh, a guy named Buck Sexton, who's a wonderful guy, got along with him great. But frankly, our politics together were not as interesting as my current co-host. He's right. less of um, the sort of populist right and more on the sort of traditional conservative right. And he decided for personal reasons he wanted to focus more on his radio show. So after him, I really fought to, to bring on my current co-host, Sagarin Jetty, who's phenomenal, super smart, bright guy, really thoughtful, really interesting, really genuinely. Great um, smile, by the way. Great smile. He has a disarmingly charming smile. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's such a, um, like he's a lot younger than me, uh, but he's has a kind of wisdom well, to yeah, him. Because wise I, beyond I think he's, because he, he lived abroad, I think that helps. But anyway, he's got this great perspective and this really um, populist critique and similar view of the kind of core rot in the country, the hollowness of of selling to our people that, you know, you'll just be happy if you can buy another piece of cheap Chinese-made crap right. and, like, you know, don't worry as we suck all the prosperity out of your communities because all that really matters is that GDP increases another point, right? So he has that same critique. He takes the policy in different directions oftentimes, but it's amazing how much... If you watch the show, a lot of times people have a hard time pinning our ideologies because we agree so much, even though I'm on the left and he's on the right, just because we have those same sort of foundational critique of the country. So, um, you know, honestly, it was his and our, he and I together, um, our kind of creative concept for the show. And um, they let us do it. That's right. I mean, that's basically all, all there is to it, even though it's it's a little bit different than the Hills overall brand. You know, the Hills very sort of mainstream DC. Rising is very not mainstream DC, but um, it's part of I think what people like about the show because it looks and feels mainstream. But then the content, right, exactly, yeah. the guests, the perspective is really really different. One of the things that we pride ourselves on very much is actually having the full gamut of ideologies expressed. So it's not like a, you know, oh, we're going to have the left and the right, but both of them are really, you know, corporate sellouts. Yeah, and go like, like to the same yeah. dinner parties and cocktail right. parties and like hang out together. Right. And yeah, it's really Yeah, cool. and we have, I mean, we have the establishment Democratic right. perspective represent. We have the establishment Republican perspective. We have the, the Trumpist Republican. We right. have actual leftists on the show. We really genuinely try to have the full gamut. And it's been very heartening to me to see the response and the excitement around having a place that will actually call bullshit on both parties. Right. Because that's essentially, I mean, MSNBC and CNN both may as well be like DNC right. headquarters. And Fox News obviously is yeah. like, you know, direct link to the Trump White House. So just having a place where people feel like, okay, we know that you have a perspective, you're upfront about that, but you're honest with regards to your own sides. Exactly. There's been a real appreciation yeah. for that. There's so, I mean, I always say that's so much more honest and, and, uh, and less, it's, it's so much less dishonest to just own where you're coming from instead yeah. of feigning this obje objectivity, um, which really is unhealthy for democracy and for the media, because if you're not realizing, if you're not like upfront about your 
um, persuasion or orientation, then people reading it don't know that that's coming from a certain ideological part of the spectrum and they take it as objective fact. And it's especially dangerous when it's like reported news, like with the Sydney Embers and the John the Martins of the world. Um, so just um, going back to how the show was created, they wanted it to be like both sides of the aisle. That was part of it. Um, and how did you, how did you find, like, okay, I, I hope Sagar isn't offended, but how did you know, I hadn't heard of him before Rising, so how did you know who he was and what was he doing at the time? So, uh, he was covering the White House for the Daily Caller. That's so funny. And he, um, actually filled in a couple of times and I was like, oh, this guy is a real, like, this is a real talent, a real intellect and would be easy to develop. And, you know, I mean, everybody is nervous when they sit in the anchor chair for the first time and there's reading the prompter and all the things you have to do, but you can tell right away when someone will be able to pick that up quickly. And I knew he'd be able to pick it up really quickly. And that was the show that I really was hoping to do from the beginning, but it's very hard to find. I mean, his perspective is not a common perspective, and it's very hard in the Trump era to find someone who's going to be remotely honest yeah. about the failings of this administration from a, a right critique. And he not that only, isn't like Rick Wilson. Sorry, I cut well, you off. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. And so that he's willing to do that, but then he also is like probably harder on like the libertarian Reagan type Republican right. than anyone else. Um, makes him a really unique and interesting find. Yeah. It, it's funny because I have friends who watch the show um, and they started watching it because they saw me on it. And so they, you know, they didn't know about it like organically. And they're like, no, what do you, uh, Sagar's not right wing. He's not on the right. You're, is that real? No, you're kidding. And it's interesting because I do find now, especially in the kind of post 2016 world that there's an honesty and intellectual honesty that I appreciate and feel like I can share. And I see you sharing with Sagar that, I mean, again, as you said, it's not that common a perspective, but there are certain overlaps that I never really felt or was aware of or tapped into that I feel, you know, more in common on a lot of issues with someone like Sagar than I do with like a, with someone who even identifies as a liberal. Um, uh, Can you talk about that dynamic? And, and also like, what are the things that you guys don't see eye to eye on and how do you handle that? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it comes from that shared willingness to critique the past 30 years, Yeah. right? Where look, we have this sort of fiction in DC that there's gridlock, that no one agrees on anything, that the parties are totally divided. That's actually not remotely right. true, right? <laughs> on all, it's just that they're completely divided when it comes to like doing anything that would help your life, yeah. right? Or like the lives of the working class or working poor people, they're completely divided and incapable of doing anything in that direction. But it, when it comes to launching new wars, when it comes to new tax cuts for the rich, when it comes to expanding military budgets, when it comes even until recent years, you know, new bad trade deals, there was a ton of bipartisan consensus yeah. around. There's this bipartisan consensus around bailing out Wall Street and doing nothing for homeowners. So right. there has been a lot of bipartisan consensus and it's been a disaster yeah. um, for most for most Americans, it's been an utter disaster. So that bipartisan consensus is what we both stand against. Now, where we come down in different places is Sagar is very much an immigration restrictionist. Yeah. Um, he is on a number of issues, socially conservative. He thinks that weed should be, should 
stay illegal. So yeah, he's like ban it all. I he hope he's even, never smoked. And I have I have to give him credit because I because I'll say to him like, well, what about alcohol? Is so much more damaging, yeah. right? It's yeah. so much worse. So many more deaths. Right. Like so much worse for your health, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, look, if there was any possibility in our cultural conversation that we could go back to prohibition right. wow. even before, wow. like that's how far it goes. And he'll tell you, you know, oh, domestic violence was down and alcohol-related deaths were down, et cetera, which may be true. On the other hand, of course, it spawned this incredibly, like, destructive, murderous black market, right, that we still are, like, dealing with the ramifications of. So, obviously, I come down a different place. But those are some of the areas where we disagree. Um, And I think, you know, he and I both... And I think you share the critique of a sort of shallow identity politics. You said this on our show, which I love the way you phrased this, a politics that starts and ends with microaggressions. Yeah. Like, good to start there. Yeah, yeah, it was a great line. Good to start there, but let's not end there. I think he has more of a wholesale critique of identity politics where he just has no use for it whatsoever. He's probably against affirmative action, I assume, or... I don't don't know. Probably, but I don't know. I haven't asked him specifically on that. Get him on the phone. (laughs) That would be, you know, that would be consistent with his other views. So I think we differ a little bit there. Um, The book that we just co-authored, Populist Guide to 2020, there's a... we, We essentially took the... The learnings that we get from from the guests on our show like you, from the monologues that we deliver, from the audience feedback, and coalesced it into four themes. One of them is core rot about that, like the addiction crisis and the way that trade has hollowed out America and all of these massive problems that we face that have actually led life expectancy to decline even at a time of economic prosperity, which is insane. There's a section on media, and you can imagine what that's yeah. like. Both of us have our own, you know, critique of the media, and that there's a lot of sort of shared yeah. views there. There's a section on theories of change and how you actually could go about successfully making some of the pro-working class changes that we think are essential to the future of the country. And there's a section on identity. And of the four sections, the identity section was the hardest for us to kind of synthesize our views and both of us land in a place where we were comfortable. Right. But um, so that's an area, like I said, that there's there's a little bit of difference of views, but there's a remarkable amount of similarities in the way that we view the party establishments, in the way that we view the reality of modern America and the way that the um, working class has been just completely sidelined and essentially both parties pander to them on racial identity um, rather than actually trying to deliver for their material interests. Right. Um, I know one of the most irrational takes I've I've heard and seen, and it comes up all the time, is this idea that, oh, because people respond to racist arguments, therefore, we cannot organize around class. Or, I mean, Tim Wise, is that his name? I saw him, like, tweet something about, and this is so painful for me, watching this, like, white virtue signaling. (laughs) Like, it's almost like white, like, minstrel a white minstrel thing. Maybe I'll take that out uh, or put it in the bonus only. But Patreon only. But it is. It's this performative woke allyship that's not actually that's allyship, not solidarity, which is a whole different thing. That an interesting distinction, I think. But um, this idea that like economic um, either decline or increasing inequality, as if that has no bearing on people's susceptibility to racism and um, bigotry. And another really stupid argument is. If it were about economic anxiety, then black people would 
have voted for Trump. And I'm like, do you understand that racism in this country works differently on black people and on white people? Like to generalize, it's like a, like it doesn't, it's like saying if uh, economic issues had been a thing, uh, influenced the whole, like Hitler's rise to power, then Jews would have v- supported Hitler. It's like, no, that's not how it works, you know? Um, so, uh, what were we just talking about? Sorry. Well, but, but the, uh, it's, I mean, did you, how much did you have to synthesize your ideas? Cause the book is structured with like mono, kind of like each voice has its own thing. Right. right? So right. it didn't have to be, I, I guess it's like more like you wanted to be able to co-sign there, each other stuff or no, I mean, for sure, his views in the book are his views, right? right? And, and let me just be yeah. clear about that. Right. <laughs> if there's anything in there that Sagar said that you yeah. want to cancel me for, that's all on him, just yeah. saying, yeah. Um, and vice versa. But, um, at the beginning of each section, we put oh, together right, right a, a synthesis yeah. of sort of the shared view right. before we go into each of our individual right. takes. And so, yeah, that was the, that was the section that was the most challenging to kind of synthesize the views. But on your, on your, uh, comment about the, the economic anxiety, yeah. which is like the most frustrating, stupid conversation either. Did you see there was this whole outrage about a Bernie yeah. Sanders answer to the yeah. New York times about exactly yeah. that? And I just, we've been having this debate since 2016 about like, is it race or is it economic right. anxiety as if those two things are separate, right. which is stupid. And mutually exclusive causes, yeah. But second of all, part of the obsession with this conversation is to um, to dismiss yeah. Trump voters, to not have to care about right. them, right? And to not have to examine the failures of neoliberalism that would have led white working class right. people, whether they're racist or not, right. to seek another party. And there's also this other piece, which is like, you know, I can't get into the heads of every voter and tell you whether they're worthy of a better life or yeah. not. And I didn't sign up to belong to a party that was going to do that. Right. right. I mean, I don't think ultimately, yes, racism is real. Sexism is real. Bigotry is a, absolutely a real thing. But we don't get to pick and choose right. who's worthy and unworthy of a dignified life. I and mean, we're the party that at our best supports second chances for people who've been incarcerated, exactly. who've committed heinous crimes. And we believe like right. you've served your time, come out into society, exactly. be able to vote. I mean, I am like Bernie Sanders. Yeah. I think you should when be able to vote in yeah. your, when yeah. you're incarcerated. incarcerated yeah. um, so we support that on the one hand, but then on the other hand, if you don't have like sufficiently woke PC progressive, identity views then you're just like beyond the pale we should just write you off and have completely complete contempt for you i i don't don't accept that i don't think it makes any sense right i don't think if you're going to be a party that rather than just looking for power actually wants to deliver for people i don't think you get to pick and choose who's worthy of your you know of of humanity essentially yeah also, it's a great way to undermine universal programs, right? Yes. Because if you don't have to, if you write off people as not deserving empathy or also it's kind of like, I don't really, I mean, I have empathy for people as do you who are like struggling and I don't subscribe to their aunt, like, let's say a white working class person. And of course, another thing is that people pretend like all the working class is white and there's a monolith of black people who don't, aren't part of that working class. I mean, that's a whole other thing, but right. like, I have empathy for the person who, and I understand like the idea that if you are struggling economically, it's, 
we Dems need to make the argument. They need to explain why undocumented people are not the cause of your economic suffering. But to pretend like to not get that makes you irredeemable or beyond um, like redemption or, or that you don't deserve to be spoken to is just ridiculous. Because the truth is that's a comp that's, it's not like on its face evident. Like you see you're losing your jobs or you're getting poor and you see other people in the country coming in. It makes sense on a basic level that you think like, oh, that must be the cause of it. Um, and so we need to explain why it isn't the cause of it. But um, and I don't can't I do have empathy. I mean, Nina Turner's like this country was founded on racism and genocide. So how are we going to blame people for, you know, and she's like, it's different. I'm not talking about people harming people like but even if you have no empathy for people, like I would say, even if you think these people have like three teeth, you know, sleep with their sisters, whatever, like stereotype that they have and total snobbery. Like, do you want these people to vote against Trump or not? Right. Like, we live in a world where people vote or don't vote. And that's how we elect the person or the other person. Um, so that's ironically, those are the purity politics, yeah. you know? Um, and yeah, but I think it does give people an excuse to not have to push these universal programs because, uh, yeah, it's so, and I also not have to win over working class voters. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's it. Look, the Republicans have been playing to white identity. This is not new to Trump. Right. Right. This has been going on for decades. This is, Trump has taken it to the next level. Yeah. Um, but this is a continuation of a longstanding trajectory within the Republican Party. The, the part that doesn't get acknowledged very much is that Democrats, in order to keep the um, black and brown working class in the Democratic tent, rather than actually like making their lives better and appealing to their self-interest, they just make the like, well, we're not racist, so yeah. you have to vote for yeah. us, right? Not the Republican, like Dems, not Trump. Right. It's its own kind of, of like identity pandering right. um, that fundamentally isn't particularly successful. I mean, that was the Hillary Clinton campaign right. and how was turnout among African-Americans? Right. Not good. How was the, the how were the vote totals for Latinos? Oh, actually, Donald Trump increased right. his you know yeah. vote totals over Mitt Romney. So that kind of shallow identity level pandering is first of all destructive to the country, destructive to you know the working middle class of America, but also you know people see, people really see through it. Right, Leslie Lee. I don't know if you know him. You you should have him on. He's based in Virginia, actually. He started the hashtag years ago. Um, Bernie made me white. So he <laughs> and some people were predicting that if Bernie won Alaska, Washington, and Hawaii, that people would like pretend that those were white states, even though they're, they're not. <laughs> and sure enough, he wins those in the primary in 2016. And sure enough, CNN's like, well, you know, he does well in places like that, really white rural states. And it's like, it's not, it's not, doesn't have a high black population, but it also has a very high non-white population. And so when they did that, everyone, they were kind of laughing. And, and Leslie Lee tweets, Ever since hashtag Bernie made me white, I've been binge watching Friends. And then uh, like a, another guy who's Latino was like, ever since Bernie made me white, I've been eating my salsa mild. Um, so, uh, but he has this line that cracked me up when I interviewed him. He was talking about how there was this study that had come out that like Trump voters were racist. And that's a whole other issue about how they measure racism, which we can talk about. But and he's like, yeah, Trump, there are racist Trump voters, there are racist um, Bernie voters, there are racist Clinton voters. That still doesn't justify or excuse losing to Trump. And Obama fought for those voters and got some of them. 
And he goes, and Hillary, as a racist herself, should have been able to do well with those voters, which I thought was really funny. Do you identify as a feminist? I do, yeah. And how long have you done been doing that? And uh, <laughs> has that changed for you, the way you, the way you, the kind of feminism you identify with? Uh, I don't think it's changed for me. I mean, I think I've considered myself a feminist since I really knew what that term meant. But I think that... So how old are you when you, like, more or less? I mean, I... I really didn't, for me, my political awakening was really like Iraq war, college, like that was the first thing that really pulled me in. And then when I, you know, when I ran for Congress and I had these stupid party photos leaked of me, like, you know, at a party with my then husband and they were, I was completely clothed, but they were sort of like provocative, I guess. And everybody went nuts over this thing that gave me a crash course in feminism. Yeah, (laughs) right. Um, and like uh, Rush Limbaugh went after you hard. Yeah. yeah, 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 all of all of those fun things. Um, but ironically, I mean, this is a little bit of a, di- a digression. Those photos, if those photos hadn't been released, I would not have had the media platform right. to be able to go on and do the things that yeah. I've done. So. Thank God for small favors. Yeah, yeah, so nice job trying to silence yeah. me, guys. Yeah. But, um, but you know, I I wouldn't say that my view of feminism has changed, but I would say it's deepened. Yeah. So, um, you know, I I think that as I've just become more um more aware more uh, educated in my own political direction i think more about the importance of class within feminism and i said i've said before that you know for me i have higher aspirations than just changing the gender ratio of the right. oppressors right, right. Like we yeah, can do better exactly, than that yeah. and so for you know for um for most Americans, does it really matter to them if it's like a black woman, Kamala right. Harris, who's prosecuting them right. for not having their kids in school or right. like for <laughs> possession okay. of marijuana yeah. or whatever? Right. Like that doesn't really, that doesn't ultimately help right. them, right? If, if I, if that's my only option, right. then, I like a woman of color doing lock that. lock people up and lock right. poor people and people of color up, yeah. Right, right. Like I, um, I just was, we actually were just watching this, um, Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos oh, yeah. documentary. There's a podcast too about it. Yeah. Oh, I have to, yeah. I have to listen to that. And, um, it kind of was that theme of, she really modeled herself after Steve Jobs, yeah. but she wanted to embrace the whole like con artist part of Silicon right. Valley, which is very real Yeah. and which yes dudes get by with all the time the only thing was that she was dealing with real human beings lives and like diagnosis and things that could actually impact their health and potentially lead to death when she was doing her con artisting but you know it just speaks to that piece of I don't really consider it a victory when we have women who are able to con right, yeah. investors and patients and whatever is often right, as yeah. men. It's like I don't get excited about Margaret Thatcher. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Or Sarah Palin. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, um, so I think I've just become a little more thoughtful and aware in yeah. that department. I one of the things for me is that my relationship to other feminists, or so-called feminists, has changed. Like, we used to agree on a lot more stuff. I was always left. My politics were always left, and I always thought, like, okay, well, if there's a revolution or someone really radical or quote-unquote radical, because, like, Sanders' beliefs are, um, his the things he pushes are all, all have mainstream, have popular support and are actually mainstream, but they've been framed by the media elites and the political elites as fringe or radical, right? Um, or impossible or undoable. But I always thought, like, well, if someone like that came around, we'd obviously all move to him and be on the same side. And when people didn't do that, I was like, oh, okay, so you either, like, you're actually more centrist than I than I thought. And then, then you even pretended to be um, because it was no longer the, the only viable thing. Like, liberalism 
Obama was not the only choice. Right. Obama-type politician, right, when we saw how well Sanders was doing. Um, so, and I, I kind of look back on some of my writing that was a little superficial, I kind of, and I cringe. Um, I think the difference is, like I, like I said on your show, to quote a scholar, but that's okay to, like, you know, start with with representation but not end there. And, um, you know, the, what's so funny is that people who, who wear the label of intersectional, they're really not intersectional. They don't look at the intersection. They just dismiss class or they dismiss the intersection between class and other things. And uh, it's only about gender. You know, Hillary Clinton's famous thing, well, breaking up the banks and racism, no. It's like, how could you actually say that aloud? Because <laughs> first of all, no one's pretending that's gonna end racism. But second of all, they're not, it's not unrelated. Like if you look at the housing crisis, of right? Um, Just of all Patrick. Oh my God, yeah, I know. Crystal, it's easier for you to say that as a white person. <laughs> you don't know the choices that Deval Patrick had to make. It was it was a uh, bank capital or I don't know what. Um, you know, it's interesting because Mark Lamont Hill, who you and I were on HuffPost Live once when he was the host. Yeah. He goes after Bernie in some ways. I'm like, don't think it's fair. Like he went after him after over like giving us speech after a debate that Stacey Abrams was like, he spoke after Stacey. Do you remember this pseudo controversy? No. No. He spoke after Stacey Abrams, I think. Was it after her? I think he waited till after. Maybe it was at the same time, but people were like, he's stepping on her toes. He's like taking away her moment. And Mark Lamont Hill criticized that. He was like, I criticized Bernie and that is bullshit. The way people are talking about his answer to the New York times. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the faces on those people you saw the new york times faces yeah. like it you could do a, an amazing mashup it looks like he's insulting all of their mothers like <laughs> one by one like they're they're so uncomfortable well and did you see um did you see the clip that was immediately found of president obama saying like literally the same exactly thing. The same have thing. you done the monologue about that yet <laughs> no. you should do that this week you should just show it it would be good i mean yeah. there's also like the joe biden social security stuff hanging out oh, yeah. there so yeah. we're off on monday for the oh i'm okay yeah 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 so, so and that's someone else. That's my monologuing. <laughs> What'd you say? It limits my monologuing. Uh, well, you, you can do it on Tuesday, right? Yeah, of I, We had, um, on Useful Idiots, we had on Nina Turner, who talks about how she's like, MLK Day is coming up, and we're going to see the same liberals, like, co-opt him, or pseudo-woke, or apparently woke people co-opt him, and pretend his message is all, like, it's not about class, or it's not about anti-militarism, or it's not about the triple evils, as he called it, That's of materialism, right. um, colon imperialism. Or war. I mean, whatever. The point is, he was talking about racism and class and empire and capitalism. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Cap yeah. Racism, capitalism, and imperialism. imperialism. Yeah. Um, but that's also really frustrating. And um, yeah, it is true. How I do my my views of feminism. It's yeah. Like, I I wonder if this happens to you, but there is really a pressure to. It's hard to be a, in the media and do media critique while you're in the media because you go to parties with people or you're friends with them or you used to be friends with them and you don't really want to push back on them. And I feel that a little bit. And so I can't even imagine how much more people who are like, have had year long, year, you know, com relationships over the years with people or like Andrea Mitchell being married to Alan Greenspan. Like, I think that may influence her, her reporting a little bit. Um, and you're at the Hill, right? So I'm assuming like you can't really go after them too hard. Uh, which I don't say like to judge you. I mean, I just think that like that's the the nature of it. So how do you balance that or like not wanting to go after someone who you're friends with or that you you know hang out with? Like, 
Yeah, what's the what's the answer to that? I mean, it's it it sounds like a stupid concern, but it's yeah. very real. I mean, this is the way that human beings work. So I'll give you a perfect example. Yeah. Joy Reid. Yeah. Joy and I are friends. Like, Joy's been good to me. We came up in MSNBC yeah. at roughly the same time, right? I have, you know. So I, on a personal level, I like Joy. Yeah. And, um... And yet, you know, some of the things that she the says body on language. her show, like the, the body language, right? Thing? And so, especially um, this clip that just came out of her uh, of her show, where she brought in a body language expert to say that Bernie Sanders was lying, and there was a lot of language. I actually wanted to ask you about yeah. some of the language. Which, look, I'm not one to call like anti-Semitism on whatever, but right, there were some, yeah, there were some tropes there. Yeah, there were some tropes there, and it's funny because like you and I, and you're someone who is often uh appreciative of sanders on palestine and palestinians like you notice this how exceptional he is unfortunately it's exceptional but so i'm always i've been in the place usually where i'm like no x critique of israel is not anti-semitism stop weaponizing anti-semitism but for the first time in my life i'm like wait that's kind of anti-semitic or that trope is anti-semitic or it's a bit of hypocrisy because i mean some of them really are like him standing in front of a money tree but the other level of it is that people who really weaponize identity politics so that any criticism of Hillary Clinton or any criticism of Warren is sexist or misogynist, they don't apply that same lens to Sanders. Right. So nothing's anti-Semitic. Right. While everything is sexist. I guess I that's then that's what it is. Is if it was somebody who had a different political framing who said some of the things she said about his physicality right. and she used the word weirdy. You know, which is so like, disgusting. I think, you know, I mean, listen, I'm on TV all the time and there's all kinds of times when I, my words, you know, escape me and I don't phrase things in the most articulate way. But if there wasn't so much word policing of everyone yes, else, exactly. right. then, you know, I think I probably would be like, eh, you know, I mean, it sounds a little bit right. tropish, but let's right. let it slide. I think that is the part of it that I'm reacting to is the kind of hypocrisy yeah, there double standard, of yeah. being so into the the like pc word policing on everything else but then in this one area right. there's just like free for all right? right yeah um so you know with joy in particular i just look i feel like i feel like i try to be fair no matter who it is i feel like it's much more important that we're honest about these things um than that we protect our friends right. um and look i i hope that if if I received you know criticism from them the other in the other direction that was justified, I hope that I would take that well and actually reflect upon it. But ultimately, look, doing the type of politics, the type of show that we do, is inherently uncomfortable. It right. just is, right? Out of DC, especially where we're based, coming from the hill, all of that, it is fundamentally uncomfortable. You are challenging people in a way they don't want to be challenged. You're saying things they don't want to hear. All of those things. And you just have to decide that being willing to say that and, and leverage your voice in whatever small way you can on behalf of the working class is more important than, like, their feelings. Right. You know, but or it's your hard, own discomfort. Right? Because it's subconscious a lot of times. That... I, I listen to it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I it have is. That, yeah. um, you know, I thought I think AOC has been very honest about this since she's come into Congress and talking about how challenging it is to maintain your like commitment to what's right 
when you get to know these people yeah. and they're your friends. I mean, you even see with Bernie Sanders, his friend Joe Biden. You're like, come on, I brother. Know. Like, this guy has done more to hurt people than anyone I know. else. And I know. So, like, you got to do this yeah. thing. And I know it makes you uncomfortable. But if you are willing to really fight for the people who need you, you have to be right. willing to hurt your feeling, the, your friend's yeah, feelings. I know. I know. And be uncomfortable. I know. Didn't, didn't Joe Biden the other day be like, I think he came out, he's like, look out on a watch it with Iran. Did he say that at the beginning? I think he said that. Like, it was one of his, like, on the mic, like, when he's like, this is a big fucking deal. So he was like, watch it with Iran. And that, to me, is like, I prefer that so much to Warren's pseudo-civility. Uh-huh. And that's such a Bidenism, though. Like, he he cracks me up. Like, not intentionally. He really cracks me up. Um, and his politics are way worse, obviously, than Warren's. But I have to admit, like, on a personal level, I'm, like, so just... I'm much more disgusted and infuriated by Warren, especially because she... She claims the mantle of progressivism, and she is more progressive than Biden, but there's still a fundamental dishonesty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this was a wa- watershed moment for a lot of people. At least it was for me. It kept getting worse. It was like first that stupid email where she was like, I'm disappointed in Bernie. Yeah. Because some volunteer was like, when you're talking to Warren voters, say she's my second choice, but she is less has a more affluent uh, college-educated base and so is less electable, right? Like, that's a hit, a hit, like, that's a smear, just saying this, saying she's your second choice, so you're not kneecapping her, and you're just stating the truth, right? right. Um, so there was that, and then there was, the, of course, the sex, the, a woman can't win thing, and then the debate thing, when she said it at the debate, kept getting worse, and then when she's like, I think you just called me a liar on national TV, and he's like, what? All right, let's talk about this later. Like, anytime. Like, any time was, like, her bring it moment. Like, she's she's so annoying. And then he's like, all right, let, you call me a liar. Let's talk about it later. But, like. <laughs> Tom Steyer do the Tom Steyer part. Oh, yeah. He's like, I don't want to get involved, but I just want to say hi. Like, I think he's a or little he's starstruck. Like, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Um, I kind of like Tom Steyer more than I thought he would. Yeah. yeah he kind of looks like a marionette also. Well, he's um, certainly come up in the ranks over Elizabeth Warren now. I know. And even, even, um. Pete, I feel like I like him more than Warren. Um, and <laughs> the fact that anyone is, is like, oh, we don't know what happened, or, oh, my God, Jess McIntosh, is it McIntosh, is yeah. how you say it? Like, when you have even Anderson Cooper being like, when she's like, it was not a he said, she said, it was reported out. Like, do you think she believes that, or does she really just hate Bernie? What do you think happens there? I think there's, I think there's this absurd like application of believe women to this scenario that is completely inappropriate and insane if you bother to like dig down even like below the first millimeter of analysis um because obviously like the the reason that we are um should be inclined to believe women in a sexual assault scenario is because there is nothing to be gained from talking about that right all the incentive like it's horrible for women when they report on the other hand elizabeth warren has everything to gain from this exchange although i have to say it's i don't think it's working out right the way she thought it was the intention that was certainly the intention it was so clear and i think i mean what is encouraging is i think that most people really saw right through it right right? there's such an over-representation of this particular type of politics in the media and on twitter that is just not consistent with most people out in the real world. Right. So I think for most people, 
Number one, they don't really care what was said in a room a year ago between two friends. I mean, frankly, like, listen, if, if our text yeah. messages to right. each other were we, published, we'd probably be yeah. You know? I mean, I just think it's such a breach yeah. of trust right. to leak a private conversation with your friend in a way to paint it in the worst possible light. It's just a horrific thing it really to is. do to yeah. someone. No one's even looking at that. Like, if he did had said that, which I really don't think he said that, I'm sure he was like, look... They're going to use stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's, that's, that's really what happened. But let's say he had said that, like, in a private conversation. Why would you release that or leak that or go and talk about him? And one of the things that's been fascinating is to watch the people who pretend to be these, these feminists or, or male allies tr- treat... Oh, and by the way, I want to thank you for the way you, you laid out that Believe Women thing. So, like, you really crystallized it perfectly, which is that... The, because I kind of just, I can't even think about it clearly because I get so angry, but I'm like, this is not a believe women thing. This is not a me too thing, but you put it perfectly about why we we do like a default is to believe women in, in the context of sexual assault and why it should not be in this context. But, um. Sorry, what were we just saying? I got a... Uh, well, it's the... Um... the I got thrown. Oh, Tulsi. Tulsi. Okay. So these same people... Right who pretend to be allies and believe women and everything's a sexist trope and everything's misogynist. Um, I saw this tweet from, what is his name? Winstead um, Herdnand at the New York Times. Oh, okay. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the, he's, he went to the NW, he's, he's a black reporter. I say that because there are like not many at New York Times. So he, and he um, went to the NAACP conference, recovered everyone except for Sanders, like just to give you a sense of his record. Okay. And he tweeted, when Tulsi very relevantly tweeted, I met with Bernie Sanders when I was considering running, and he was very supportive. Like he always is. Like he always is, yeah. And um, this New York Times reporter tweeted, uh, I tried to explain it on Useful Idiots too. I should really under, like have a, an elevator pitch already, but <laughs> tweeted an image, a GIF, quote tweeted that with, an, with a GIF of a white woman standing up in front of this black athlete. Which is like the gift kind of symbolizes like no one was talking to you, white woman. Why are you injecting yourself into right, this conversation? Right. Which is just so ironic because Tulsi is the only woman of color, color in the race. And Elizabeth Warren is the white woman. Is the and not only that, she looks like her. Like she's wearing pearls and she has short like short white uh, blonde hair. Um, and it was just so like gross. And you're a reporter. You're not even an op-ed person. And the contempt, the open contempt for Tulsi Gabbard is so shocking and it also there are all these sexist tropes so you see in the thread all these people putting like she just couldn't help herself she has to get in the middle she needs the attention um even like a a a gif of glenn close in fatal attraction where it's like pay attention to me david like all these people who pretend to be these feminists and so and care about this stuff are just so horrific to her and everything is about her greed her ambition um yeah it's really disgusting and so you see the same people they're just outing themselves. Right. Well, and that's it. And that's what I've really, I think, realized this year more than any other because it's so clear. Look, Tulsi Gabbard's a woman of color. Yeah. First Hindu in yeah. Congress. She was the youngest woman ever elected right. to the Hawaii State Legislature. I mean, when she was on vice chair of the DNC, they loved her. Right. She was a rising star, could do no wrong. And the moment that she crossed them to back Bernie, forget it. Right. She's she been punished. Yeah, she's, she's yeah. smeared, punished. Yeah. I mean, the treatment yeah. of her is right. just horrific. Um, Andrew Yang. Right. Right? 
here he is, I mean, breaking down stereotypes of, yeah. you know, this idea that, oh, Asian-Americans should be in the background right, and, right. you know, just totally busting the stereotype and leading a movement as like a charismatic leader. Yeah. And there's like, no, they can't even bother to learn his name or his I face. I mean, it's just insane, right? right? Leave him off of graphics, et cetera, et cetera. And then Bernie Sanders... Um, yes, he's an old white man. He's oh also the God. son of immigrants and would be our and first Jewish president. Yeah. And at a time of rising anti-Semitism, and no one ever says anything yeah. about that. And it just makes you realize that identity is only important to them and only celebrated by them when it's identity matched with a status quo politics, right? right? Yeah, if your exactly. politics are inconvenient, then no, forget about it. Like, right. we don't care about your diversity. We'll, we'll make, right. render you invisible. We'll smear you. Right. We'll just pretend, we'll just ignore that you have a trailblazing right. identity right. altogether. It's only used as a way to elevate a status quo politics and make it feel like it's progress. Right. Or when like it's, it's really, but, right, right, right. Yeah. when it's really just more of the same, only with a different identity. Right. A different person. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. Pete too. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of the, the sort of like Pete support comes from people who mostly boomers. I mean, right. this is again, like yeah. not a slam. This right. is looking at the demographics yeah. that support him. It's a boomer heavy demographic of people who basically have benefited from the status quo, right. but they like the idea of progress. They like the idea of change. And so the fact that he has a trailblazing identity matched with the status quo politics is like a perfect fit. Right. Uh, yeah. Jane Lynch. Remember her tweet? <laughs> oh my God. That was so painful. Um, yeah. I, I keep thinking, I'm like mayor Pete colon, you're lucky you're gay because you're so boring. Like that could be his, uh, luckily like gay. So I'm not boring. I don't know. Um, and also people really don't get, they get it when it's Sarah Palin, they get it when it's Margaret Thatcher, but when they're remotely in this, on this, in the same party, people don't get how like, this is about the lives of countless unseen anonymous, powerless people. Like if you forget, forget the class stuff or intersectionalism, let's just say you just care about race, right? Do you want someone who's, well, I guess you do have to look at the economic stuff, but like, it's so clear that Medicare for all disproportionately benefits people of color. So do you want like the, Kamala's out, but like, do you want the person who happens to be a black woman um, passing policy or implementing policy that that does not empower, elevate, help people of color? Or do you want a white dude who, yeah, he's Jewish, first of all, but let's just admit that. Do you want someone who's not a, a black person implementing something that disproportionately helps black people? I mean, my support of universal programs yeah. stems from a belief that racism, racism is real and powerful and oft weaponized in right. American politics. Because what happens? I mean, what are first of all, what are the most successful, popular programs? Social Security right. and Medicare. Right. Why? Because they're universal. Right. So on the other end of the spectrum, you have quote unquote welfare, right. which is, you know, oh, it's for those people and right. the welfare queen tropes right, and exactly. all of that There's stuff. There's no social which, security queen. Right. Exactly. Which Joe Biden was happy to participate in, right. by the way, when that yeah. was politically expedient. 
But anytime you make something for some of the people and not all of the people, it becomes vulnerable to that yeah. kind of demagoguery and exploitation because then you can spin a narrative and this is, this isn't just done by the right, but often the right spin, spins this narrative about how unworthy people right. are taking your tax dollars right. and using handouts, it. Yeah. Exactly. The handout narrative starts. And so it's actually for me, important, critical to have programs be universal so yeah. that they aren't vulnerable to that kind of Sigma. divisiveness. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. stigmatism. And the other piece of it, though, that um, that isn't often talked about is, like, how degrading it is for people to have to go and continue yeah. to prove their poverty yeah. in the federal government. It's just, like, a really dehumanizing right. thing to have to do right. over and over again. So, yeah, if, you know... Donald Trump's kid, Baron Trump, wants to go to, like, a public university yeah, or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I'm fine with that. That's that totally is, fine. That's really one of my... I mean, look, and Mayor Pete is a Rhodes Scholar. He gets this. It drives me crazy. It's like, really? The danger... You're, you really think that, like, oh, I don't want, like, free... You know, wealthy freeloaders. Well, like you said, it's less stigmatized when it's universal. Also, it won't get slashed right right in the same way it will when it's when it's seen as something that's handouts when it and it is humiliating for a lot of people as you said it's not like if you're in if you're in like denmark and you need to apply to be on the dole or whatever it's not as dehumanizing as it is here because of our history and the language around like pulling yourself up by the bootstraps but um yeah it just it's so obvious that if you actually cared about people on these things and on these programs you would want them to be universal. And as Nathan Robinson points out, like, are we supposed to have parks that only like uh, working class or poor people can right. go to? And like, like, cause rich people can build their own private parks. Like you're also right. creating a segregated system. Right. right. Well, and that's, I mean, it's part of why our public school system is falling apart right. is because more and more the rich are opting out of public education. Right. But everybody understands when it comes to public education why you would want to make it universal yeah. and not pick and choose. Right. The more people of means who you know choose to go to those schools, the better off often they right. are because there's additional tax revenue and resources. Right. And just research shows that when you have class mixing it's better off for everyone right so um so yeah i mean people intuitively understand that but for some reason it's not applied right. at other exactly levels. right like if it's applied i mean then you have pete and, and amy who believe in it at some levels but not at others and it's like well if you see the role of universal things at, at some levels like lower for, you know like what do they believe i guess for pre-k i think maybe it's but it reminds <laughs> me of the thing where you where um it's there, this open, it's like within their own ideology, there's this glaring hypocrisy. So going back to what you mentioned with Bernie and um, believing that the incarcerated should have the right to vote. Mayor Pete's like, I don't think so. Um, they should once they're out of jail. And he said, you know, people across the aisle, there's a, there's a racial layer for why they don't want them to have the right to vote, which is obvious. But it's like, so you're okay with the racism happening once they're, when they're in jail, Right. You just don't want it to happen when they're out of jail. Right. Like, it makes no sense. Obviously, if it's racist once they're released, it's also racist because of the way the criminal justice system works. Exactly. It's racist when they're locked up. Um, what do you think about, how do we respond to this sociopathy of uh, Warren? Just kidding. That's my line, not yours. But how do we, I mean, I want, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with anger, but how do we make sure we don't forget Joe Biden? And, and how do we channel it into, like, phone banking or texting. I mean, I was thinking I want to do a video where I like vent and talk 
like smack about Biden and Warren and I'm like, excuse me. And I do some texting to like get out, you know, get out the vote for Iowa or whatever. But how do we do this? Like, how do we do this without falling into the, the trap of like the Bernie bro thing? Or is that okay? And uh, yeah, what do you think of all this? I mean, I can tell you just from um, like the energy around our show and the amount of people who have been watching all the Bernie Warren content, like there is an energy around this issue that is like nothing that I've seen in this yeah. whole cycle. I mean, I don't think in terms of converting it into fundraising and door knocking and voting and all yeah. of that, like I don't think anything needs to be done. I think it's people, like a natural byproduct. Yes. Of it. Yeah. I think people are so outraged and it really has served to, if anyone was on the fence, it's really served to force people to take sides. Yeah. And that may not they, that may not ultimately be a bad thing. In fact, I don't think it is a bad thing. As long um, as they take the Bernie side. Yeah, but I think, look, I mean, the media obviously took Warren's side, but right. putting aside feminism and sexism and woke politics, et cetera, just the nastiness of not shaking your friend's hand and betraying them in that way really resonates with a, with a lot of folks, right. regardless think, yeah. of what the media yeah. says. I think she lost some people, right? I like, really think yeah. so. It was, I mean, it just looked so petty, Yeah. right? So petty and so obviously calculated right. in a really nasty way. So, And she was Mike. I mean, she knew that it was going to come out what she of, said to him. I mean, and... the whole thing felt completely staged, yeah, right? So, so, but, so I don't think this, this helps her. I don't think it hurts Bernie. In fact, I think it might help him a little bit. But the real thing is the opportunity cost with Biden. And right, that yeah. is a hard, I don't I don't know what the answer is. Because basically now you've got this impeachment freaking trial going on. Media wall-to-wall coverage. I mean, I was supposed to be on um, CNN recently to talk politics. And they canceled me because they're like, we're just doing impeachment wall-to-wall. I mean, for all the talk of we're going to walk and chew gum at right. the same time, they don't. They can only cover of course, right. this thing. Well, that's he, Bernie who says that. No one else really says that, right? Well, they all say it, but he's, he's the only yeah, one who actually right. attempts yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. It, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's going to be wall-to-wall coverage of this trial. So it's very hard to break through with any kind of message. Um, and I think you just have to trust that there's enough energy and the case has been made effectively enough and there's um, money put into to ads that are going out that'll help hopefully continue to make the case. But in a lot of ways, I think the race is kind of frozen. Mm. Look, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, this has been, the past few weeks have been good for Bernie, right? right? He did kind of surge at the right moment. Yeah. And so I think he's in... I think he's in good position, and my contention is very much that if he's going into Iowa tied, he will win Iowa. Same with New Hampshire, because he typically outperforms his polls. Right. Um, historically, last time around in Iowa, he outperformed his polls by about four and a half points. Um, other states, he outperformed by even more. So, um, so yeah, I think if he's going in tied, I think he's in pretty good shape. Yeah. And what about the shift? The shift in the way he's being reported on, like you have. People finally acknowledging he's one of the front. That he's a front runner. You have Jen Palmieri tweeting that he's a front runner. I'm a little suspicious. What is it? Are people finally realizing they just can't say that he's not in case he wins Iowa? They'll look like idiots. Is this so that people can say we need to vet him as much as other other people have been vetted? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the let's just ignore that he's even running phase failed. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> they, right. Yeah. That didn't work out. So now. Um, they have to try like the attack phase. And um, there was a report, we actually had the reporter on our show, Hannah Trudeau for the Daily Beast about how Obama world wants to stop burning, but they have no idea right. how to do it. Be- stop Obama. Right, <laughs> right. So 
there is a, a sort of floundering. But again, um, in that context, I don't, I'm not sure the impeachment trial is the worst thing because it's going to be very hard for them to break through with any new right, big right. attack to dominate a news cycle and really shift the right, narrative right. at this point. Not to say it can't happen. Right. Certainly if like Obama himself weighed in or whatever, that would be um, a big deal. But I don't really see him doing that for Joe Biden. I just, I don't, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't really see him doing it for Joe Biden. I don't know that, look, he was good at getting himself elected, but everyone should be calling his political instincts into judgment by the fact that he picked Hillary Clinton to be the nominee last time. And so I'm not sure he has his finger on the pulse enough to realize that Bernie could actually win. I don't know if he really believes that. Right. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, let's downplay that he's a front runner. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank God for the like Democratic Party's like ineptitude and obsession with RussiaGate because, yeah, as you say, maybe that will prevent any hits on Bernie from s- coming to the surface. Wouldn't and the media wouldn't yeah. that be just the most ironic I thing know. ever? It'd be great. They launched a whole like <laughs> PR campaign against him, and people are like Russia, 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 Russia. Right. That their whole and I mean even like the timing of this trial, like Pelosi held it to the end. I'm not saying she did it just yeah. to screw over Bernie and right. also Warren, but obviously she does not care for their politics, and clearly she did not care that this would take them off the trail right. at the very least. This right. was not like a concern for her. She's happy to have them taken off the trail right. at a critical moment. Um, it would be so perfect and ironic and hilarious if that very like attempt to rig the whole thing backfired in her right. face in the face of all the centrists. Amazing, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Crystal. Uh, this is great. We have to do it again. I would love that. Um, by the way, uh, I'm here with Crystal and her uh, three adorable kids are in the other room. Um, and uh, yeah, and we're going to have you on Useful Idiots very soon. And Crystal and I are going to be on a panel together at, at Harvard um, on January 28th. Yeah, with um, Megan Day, who's awesome, and Nomiki Kantz, who's awesome. And then we're going to be, it's going to be, uh, after us, it's going to be a great panel too with Brother Cornell. Mm-hmm. Uh Isha, uh, what's her name on Twitter? Legal Isha and um, Michael Brooks. Michael Brooks and Philip. Philip Agnew. Agnew, yeah, who seems awesome. I yeah. really wanna. I, 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 other than Isha, isn't it funny that they like gender segregated? Yeah, they did. Yeah, that? I did. Yeah, because there are not that many great men on. There aren't that many men in the. I mean, well, it, Michael Brooks could have gone on either panel, I guess. But you and Nomi, yeah, no, we could have, but. Yeah, I, I know. I noticed that. <laughs> um, killer lineup, though. Yeah, it is a killer lineup. Line, yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to say? Any final words? Um, let me just shamelessly plug the book again. Yeah, of course, if yeah. you go to, so for any of the details of the book, if you go to rising.substack.com, oh, yeah. you can find out info about the book. Um, we also are doing a few launch events, one in New York, one in LA. The New York one is with um, Michael Brooks and Kyle Kalinske. That's going to be oh, super nice. fun. LA is with Jimmy Dore. That nice. is also going to be super fun. Yeah, Jimmy goes so hard. It's really Oh, amazing. my God. He's so amazing. He's, so, he's so funny. So um, LA in February. When? New York yeah. is in March. When and where are they? Um, so LA is February 8th. So same day as that's the day that the book actually um, yeah. launches. And it's at the Lodge. Uh, and New York is, I want to say, March 7th. Okay. It's early March. Uh, and it's at uh, Bell House in oh, Brooklyn. Oh, Bell House. That's yeah. great. Yeah. I've never been there. Is it good? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I was on um, Jimmy Dore's show, which was there. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Cool. We have to do a feminist, a live feminist show. That would be fun. Yeah. 
And you're going to be in Iowa, right? I assume. Oh, maybe Sweet. not? Okay. I don't know. I don't think so. Oh, okay. It's cold there. It is cold, yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, and we will talk to you soon. And everyone follow Crystal. Um, everyone watch Rising. Everyone follow her on Twitter. Um, you guys, if you're listening to this, you probably do watch her on Rising anyway. Um, and uh, thanks so much for listening to the Katie Halper Show. Bye. Make sure you listen to the interview that I did with Matt Taibbi with Glenn Greenwald on Useful Idiots, which is the podcast and video show that Matt Taibbi and I co-host. Also, some events that are coming up. On January 25th, Saturday, January 25th at 10 p.m., I will be a guest on the Reply Guys Live show, which is part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival. Reply Guys Live is hosted by Julia Clare and Kate Willett. It's a really great podcast that they host and they're doing a live taping of it. And I will be one of the guests as will Mohanad El Sheikhi. Again, that is January 25th at Union Hall in Brooklyn. And uh, the doors open at 9.30 and the show is at 10 p.m. You can get tickets online. Also on January 30th at 7 p.m. at Koch Astoria. Catch Koch, I'm not sure you, you pronounce it honestly, but it's K-A-T-C-H. There will be a, an event for Lauren Ashcroft. Lauren Ashcraft, who is running for Congress for New York's 12th district. And it's an evening of comedy to laugh your grassroots off. And I'll be there, I'll be performing there. Kate Willett, um, who I just mentioned, because she's the co-host of Reply Guys Live, will be there performing. John Fugelsang, the comedian, writer, and serious radio host of Tell Me Everything will be there. Um, and then, wow, it's a really jam-packed week, I'm realizing. I better get a lot of sleep. I'll be on a panel. It's actually two panels. It's presented by, they're presented by Harvard students for Bernie. And title is Class Warfare, the Future of Left Politics. And that is on January 28th at 6 p.m. And there are gonna be two different panels back to back. The first one, which I'm on, is The Revolution Will Not Be Televised with former guests of the Katie Halper Show, actually. I realize all of them have been in my show. Crystal Ball, Megan Day, Katie Halper, obviously, and Nomiki Konst. Then there'll be a panel right after called Battle for the soul of the Democratic Party, Cornell West, Isha Krishna Swami, Michael Brooks, Philip Agnew. And that will be again 6 to 8 p.m. at Harvard on January 28th. Um, they're going to be announcing the actual, the exact location soon. Stand by and I'll pin it to my Twitter. Please rate and review the Katie Alper Show. Give us a great rating. Give us a nice review. Also, wanted to remind you that, of course, you can become Patreon supporters of the Katie Halper Show. That's at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Even a dollar a month makes a big difference. Uh, if you give $5 a month or more, you get access to uh, extra shows, extra interviews, bonus content. This week, for instance, uh, I'll be releasing a really fun chat that I had with Christian Parenti about the impeachment and how it's so devoid of class politics and how the impeachment could have actually been much better uh, political education than it is, but that would have required an analysis that would have exposed the Democrats' corruption. Um, and that's a cute chat that we had. It's kind of like a uh, drunk kitchen table, tipsy kitchen table discussion. I'll be releasing that soon as the um, Patreon-only episode for this week. Um, also, you'll want to join if you haven't already, because the last episode that I released for Patreon only was really great and has um, an extended chat with Alex Press, uh, Julia Salazar, Struggle Session, and Megan Day reading an excellent essay that she wrote. So basically, you get like twice as much content, um, and it's pretty great. Uh, yeah. Okay, okay. 
See you later. Thanks again for listening to the Katie Halper Show.